The following podcast contains a bit of explicit material, but much, much more that is not explicit, just as a percentage. It's Monday, November 13th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and finally, The Enemy has an appropriately nefarious name. All along, we've called the Russian hacking scandal. The Russian hacking scandal, I think it was hampered by this fact a little bit. I don't like throwing gate onto the end of everything to make it a scandal. The suffix gate is overused, except for that time when they found out that the founder of Microsoft was using the recordings of Lionel Hampton in an unauthorized manner. It was Gates, Gates, Gate. Get it? Lionel Hampton's nickname was Gates because it was said that the famous jazz vibraphonist was swinging like a gate. Could have gone with swings. Nope, went with gates. That's fine. Back to the Russian hacking scandal. We found out through some great reporting in the New York Times and elsewhere that there is a group called the Shadow Brokers. And the Shadow Brokers are an advancement, I think, of what we used to call this hacking collective. They were known as Cozy Bear, or sometimes Fancy Bear. Now, This means that the theme song, if you had to score this, if you made a movie of the week about the uh, hacking that went down once Fancy Bear or Cozy Bear was introduced, this is the song you'd pretty much have to play. Look for the bare necessities, the simple bare necessities. Forget about your worries and your strife. Now, Cozy Bear, their city slicker cousins, the Fancy Bear, they were part of a hacking group known as ATP-29. What are you going to do from a musical standpoint with ATP-29? I mean, sometimes random numbers make good songs. Sometimes, you know, depends on taste. Turn that 62 to 125, 125 to a 250. 250 to a half a man, ain't nothing nobody can do with me. But with the... The Shadow Brokers. We've got the branding, we've got the imagery, and oh, do we have a theme song. Now I should say, uh, we should clarify, uh, President Putin denies being part of the hacking scandal. Uh, He is a master manipulator, former KGB agent, schooled in disinformation and information warfare, so I think we should believe him. But if we don't, this will be the theme song. On the show today, I spiel about the complexities of the tax bill, perhaps willfully complex as orchestrated by its backers. But first, private prisons are exploding in growth in the United States, but they are as hard to penetrate as they are to escape from. All right, that was a very mixed metaphor. When I say they're hard to escape from, I could be meaning figuratively, like they're ubiquitous, but they're not. I mean, they're really actually hard to escape from. And by hard to penetrate, I could be meaning literally, like they're hard to get into, but they're not. It just means from a journalistic standpoint. Anyway, we've got someone who penetrated them, a researcher who did just that. And on tomorrow's gist, I'll talk with Adam Davidson about Kevin Hassett, the top White House economic advisor. He's been predicting that the tax cuts will boost the economy, just as he predicted in the year 2000 when they did not. He has said things about Trump's desired tax cuts that are just crazy, just nonsensical. 
Private prisons, who do they work out for? Well, one answer is clear. The people who own them and who invest in them, the stock of private prisons are great stocks to own if you like profit but don't have much of a conscience because the conditions in private prison, even compared to the not very high bar of public prisons, are often reprehensible. 29 states allow them. They are, in fact, a growing trend, as is the prison population in America. Lauren Brooke Eisen has written a book inside private prisons, an American dilemma in the age of mass incarceration. Hello, Lauren Brooke. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. There are two big private prison companies. There are Geo Group and CCA, which rebranded itself last year and is now known as CoreCivic. Is one of these two groups in terms of their track record, their philosophy, much different from the other one? They're pretty similar. Um, in the 1980s, CCA was one of the first companies on the scene that really started to become this, you know, government partner in terms of taking on, you know, the overage of prison populations in the states. And then a lot of these corporations started to pop up. Um, Some of them were sort of mom and pop type corporations. But what happened was, you know, throughout the years over the last couple of decades, they've really been eaten up by these bigger corporations. So right now there's three main prison corporations in this country. The two you mentioned, Geo Group and CoreCivic, along with MTC Core. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's some smaller ones like LaSalle Corporation in Louisiana. I mean, there were specific bills in a specific era, but just the mass incarceration trend. We were putting so many people in prisons, there was a need for them. It was the same impetus to make the DMZ privatize or even charter schools. Government is inefficient. Why not have a private prison? But was there a Congress or a president or a politician who essentially made the decision to allow these? That's a great question. And the short answer is no. These corporations emerged in many different ways. They emerged through local and state government. They emerged at the federal level. And unfortunately, policymakers didn't take the time to say, what are we doing? Before we just rely on the private sector to house these additional people in our facilities, let's have the hard conversation about what we're doing with mass incarceration in America. Should these people even be incarcerated in the first place? And and that's a huge failing of federal policymakers and state policymakers. And that's how we got into the situation. How many hundred thousand people are in private prisons? Well, over 100,000 people are in private prisons in this country. And um, what a lot of people don't talk about or even know is that about three quarters of the population in immigration detention centers are in these big facilities that are owned and operated by these same private prison companies. There are some points in history where you can pinpoint and say, this policymaker played a big role mm-hmm. or, you know, this happened. But it's it's not really one person. Privatization in the country got a big boost under President Reagan. You know, he had a couple of these big blue ribbon panels with all these luminaries in these panels where they looked at privatizing everything the government could possibly sell off and privatize. And one of the things they looked at was corrections. Mm -hmm. That sort of gave these corporations a little bit of a boost. Additionally, in the book, I did a lot of research on the crime bill, and I thought there has to be a connection here. You know, these happened around the same time. The private prison industry really started to accelerate in the late 80s and the early 90s, which dovetails exactly with when the crime bill was signed. But also dovetails with the explosion of murder and crime. Yes, it does. People didn't think it was a bad idea. I mean, people thought, I think rightly so, and I remember this, that the conditions of public prisons were pretty terrible and also inefficient and also, you know, the phrase prison industrial 
industrial complex was invented before there were private prisons in America. So we all knew that people were enriching themselves, vendors, or maybe you want to say the guard unions, people were getting wealthy off of prisons. So at the time it was seen as, well, maybe we can inject some efficiencies. What went wrong? That's another great question. The prison industrial complex is a huge part of what I explore in this book. And you're absolutely right. The private prisons are just one of many industries that make a lot of money off of corrections. Right. Last year, Geo Group and CoreCivic combined made $368 million in profits. You now have today, you have PayPal, you have JPay. I mean, these are corporations that are making money off of telephone services, emails, video conferencing. In fact, a lot of prisons now prohibit in-person visits and they only let incarcerated individuals talk to their family members and friends through paying these companies for video chats. Or they or they allow a phone call, but they charge $10 per phone call or something like that. Absolutely. The, the rate, and I explore this in the book, you know, the rates are incredibly high. And you're talking about an incarcerated population that makes pennies on the dollars when they're even working while they're incarcerated. And so you, you ask what went wrong. And you're right. At the time that these private prison corporations came on the scene, they were seen by many as a government partner using the private sector to build and operate these facilities quickly, cleanly. By 1985, over half of the states were under some sort of federal court order to reduce their prison populations or start releasing incarcerated individuals yeah. because the conditions were so unhygienic and considered unconstitutional. Happened to California, the biggest state. Very recently. Yeah. And this is still happening. Actually, even today, a lot of state prisons are over their building capacity. You know, if they're technically housing too many incarcerated individuals for what the building was built to house. One of the ways that California was able to get a handle on its prison population after the Supreme Court ordered the state to start reducing its prison population was to send a lot of the incarcerated people out of state to private prisons. That has an effect on the employment rate, the economic outcome of those towns. Yes. So in Ensenal, New Mexico, for example, a lot of people are very upset that the core civic prison is closing because they depend on it for jobs. They depend on it for tax resources. Part of what I did in this book was really look at who do private prisons affect, whether you're incarcerated, whether you are depending on the economic viability of what the private prisons bring to your area. And it's complicated. Are there key rules that a private prison doesn't have to follow that a public prison would that explains some of the worst conditions in private prisons? That's a really interesting inquiry. Um, People have this idea that state and private facilities are so different. Mm -hmm. And if you were to walk through these facilities, they look, smell, feel just like their government counterparts. They don't really feel that different. And in fact, they are supposed to follow most of the same rules. You know, if you read these contracts, the government does usually say, if our government-run facility requires 10 corrections officers, yours should require that. Mm-hmm. Or if if, we're, if our corrections officers are required to, you know, wear certain clothes, yours should. But that's the problem. These private prisons are not innovating. They're not actually doing anything better than the government. And it's not like government corrections is something to write home about. Right. They're not innovating in terms of training prisoners or housing prisoners or anything in terms of uh, what a criminologist would call good cutting edge ideas. 
because their motive is profit. They're innovating in terms of profit and stock price. That's where the innovation is. That's what we're seeing. We don't see the innovation that was promised in the 1980s and the 1990s. And what's most important to a lot of people, and one reason why we did start to rely on private prisons, we haven't seen the cost savings. In what ways, either through empirical data or your observation, are private prisons worse than public prisons in terms of, uh, I don't know, deaths inside the facility or accidents inside the facility or even recidivism rates afterwards? How do they compare? Um, There have been a lot of studies. Problem is, some of the studies that are the most favorable towards the outcomes in private prisons were actually funded by private prison industry itself. At the end of the day, four decades later, almost when you examine all of the studies, when you conduct a lit review, which is what I did for this book, there's very, very little cost savings and very, very little difference in terms of the outcomes. Some states have started thinking about how you would measure recidivism rates at private and public prisons. And Pennsylvania, for example, has started to analyze the differences of recidivism rates at a lot of their government prisons. So they can tell you right now, someone who spent three years at a prison in you know this county versus three years at a prison in another county, they can tell you those recidivism rates. And that's research that we need to be tapping into and really start to look at the difference between public and private prisons. What are some of the horror stories that have uh, come out of private prisons? We've seen riots at these private prisons and government prisons mm-hmm. as well. This is not, you know, something that only private prisons um, are at fault for. You know, we saw gladiator school at a prison in the Midwest. The problem is with the private prisons is when you do have those riots, when you have those horrendous situations, it's very hard for journalists, for attorneys, for regular people just to gain access to the facilities and to figure out what happened. You know, I interviewed so many people who are incarcerated right now in private prisons um, who are detained in immigration detention centers owned by private corporations and formerly incarcerated individuals. And I asked them about their experiences in these facilities. And a lot of them actually said they enjoyed their time in these facilities better than in government prisons. You yeah. They had Xboxes. They had more, you know, toys, more things to play with. They they felt like they weren't being watched every second of the day. And then I said, well, I'm going to play devil's advocate. You know, I'm writing this book on private prisons and sort of what this means. How do you feel about the industry? I mean, you just told me, and many of them said the same thing. They enjoyed their time better. You know, how do you feel about the industry? Every single person I spoke to said, I get sick when I think someone is making money off of my incarceration, off of my misdeeds, off of my pain. And I think that's really important because at the end of the day, whether we see a minimal tax savings, um, you know, a few percentages here and there, a few percentages of a recidivism rate reduction, what's really important, what I really took away from my research is what does this say about America? What does this say about the world? You know, private prisons are also in Australia, New Zealand, and, and the U.K., What does this say about us that we're making money off of incarceration? And that's really important. Lauren Brooke Eisen, author of Inside Private Prisons, An American Dilemma in the Age of Mass Incarceration. Thank you, Lauren Brooke. Thank you so much for having me.
And now the spiel. The tax cuts, sorry, tax reform. No, not sorry, tax cuts, and maybe not even those. They're why Republicans in Washington are Republicans in Washington. It's why all these guys, some women, hold their noses and supported Trump. It's why they're swallowing their morals and only conditionally unopposing Roy Moore. It's why they get up in the morning and go to a job that pays them only $174,000 a year if they're in Congress, even though they know as lobbyists or as consultants, they'd get a lot more than that. Just by saying ex-congressman, you get a 50% bump in pay. I think that's in the, I think that's in the federal registrar. You know, today I found out uh, from the day Daily Beast that Amoroso, you know her in the White House, she gets paid $179,700. She gets paid more than every congressman not in leadership. Huh. So why are they there? Why are they still in Congress? To get a damn tax bill through. And leading the charge is not a congressman at all, but a man whose face is made somewhat of gum, Steve Mnuchin. Here was Steve Mnuchin on Face the Nation criticizing Larry Summers' criticism of him. Larry has been quite outspoken as a previous secretary treasury. I'd say we have full transparency on the numbers. We have economists that come out. Most of them agree with us. The break even is 35 basis points for us to have break even. And I would just comment on the 35 basis points. You got that? That's how many basis points there were. Uh, basis points, uh, uh, things financial people say, uh, phrases that get you a third date on wall street, uh, uh, obscure financial details that are of no meaning to the average American. Ding, 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 ding. Now I got to say basis point. It's not really that complex. If you watch CNBC or read the financial papers, you'll find references to basis points all over the place. A basis point, it just means a hundredth of 1%. And I guess in the fast-paced, fast-talking world of finance, you don't want to spend your time getting your tongue to wrap around the word hundredth. You know, there are some names and some words that don't go well on Wall Street where everyone has to communicate really quickly, like the name Charles. Just how you have to just swish that around in your mouth, Charles. So every Charles who works on Wall Street immediately becomes a Chuck. I've always thought this kind of doomed the firm Charles Schwab. In the time it takes to say Charles Schwab, you could say Morgan Stanley Dean Witter, J.P. Morgan Chase. You could just list a whole bunch of firms before Charles Schwab. Anyway, back to Mnuchin. It's not like he was actually trying to confuse us. I mean, I totally disagree with his assessment. And what he's trying to mean in plain human speak is if his tax cuts result in an increase in gross domestic product by a third of 1%, they will have paid for themselves. I don't think that they will result in a third of 1%. And I doubt that they will pay for themselves. But anyway, that's what he was trying to say. And I don't think that he was using fancy words like basis points to try to pull one over. I just think that he's inherently a poor communicator who doesn't care, by the way, to be a good communicator. I can prove that. You ready? Let's say you're sitting there and you're hearing everything I'm saying and you want to counter-argue. Not the Charles Schwab thing, but the, uh, the basis points is bad communication. Maybe you're saying, look, Mike, basis points aren't that obscure. That's on you for being a little ignorant, for not knowing what they are. Ah, but let's revisit Steve Mnuchin's original sentence around basis points. Let's play that again. The break-even is 35 basis points for us to have break-even. The break-even is 35 basis points for us to have break-even. The break-even is, term confusing to almost everyone, to break-even. Great communication. 
this week in tautological nonsense. But even skeptics of the tax cut or prominent politicians who have voiced some skepticism and opposition also communicate rather poorly. Same show, Face the Nation, different week. This was a few weeks ago. Senator Bob Corker was on the show and he asked, what's your problem with the tax proposal? Let's break down his answer. Yeah, now, you know, it, uh, here's the deal. When you pass uh, tax reform and, and think, I don't think, John, people understand what we're getting ready to do. You're right. We don't understand. So I want you, Mr. Senator, to put your finger on it. Your little finger, perhaps. Go ahead. Shed some light, Senator. In the Senate, we passed a, a trillion and a half uh, deficit uh, kind of thing. A deficit-y kind of thing. A deficit of a job. A deficit. What's his deficit face? All right, go on. But it's really, it's different than what people think. $500 billion of that was just to sync up between current law and, uh, and current policy. No idea what that means. Maybe you need to get a little more tangible here. So you have a trillion dollars that we can use for dynamic scoring in the event dynamic scoring uh, shows that we can use that trillion dollars. Wow. This sounds suspiciously like break-even being basis points for break-even. He just said, the trillion dollars that we could use for dynamic scoring in the event dynamic scoring shows that we could use that trillion dollars. Wow. Well, go on. When you start writing the code, you do do some things that, in my opinion, are not pro-growth. I'm not criticizing that. I'm just saying that, look, I understand where we are. This almost this verged on the only thing that I could understand. He was saying when you rewrite parts of the tax code, you're going to put some things in there that are not good for growth. And since the whole point of this is to grow the economy, this is where the criticism comes in, right? And then he says, it's not a criticism. It's not a criticism. It seems like a criticism. If it's not a criticism, it should be a criticism. All right, back to basis points. Now, you know, for all the criticism that Democrats get in their messaging on everything, on taxes, they've been really effective. At every opportunity, they say, this is a tax giveaway for the rich. You know why? Because it's a tax giveaway for the rich. They say, a lot of middle class will actually pay more. A lot of studies have been done. They're right. A lot of the middle class will pay more. And they have been unwavering in saying this will make the deficit explode. It's absolutely true. The debt will definitely go up. Maybe some people on the other side will explain why that's not a bad thing. They can't give you the real explanation was, well, we're in power now. We don't care about the debt. When we're out of power, we'll harp about the debt. Republican leader Mitch McConnell tried to be as simple and as clear as the Democrats in his messaging. So he went out there and he said, every middle class taxpayer is going to get a tax cut. That is a good message. Here's the problem. It's not true. Three days ago, he admitted he, quote, misspoke when he said nobody in the middle class is going to get a tax increase. If this bill passes, it will be because of the, I'll be kind here, the discipline and dedication of a cadre of Republicans for whom tax cuts are their North Star. But as is the case with zealots, they often have the difficulty in explaining their zeal to the unfervored. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname. He is part of the hacker collective, The Ghost Protocols. Their mission, though it may be impossible, is dictated by The Ghost Protocol. The gist is also produced by Mary Wilson. She hacks as part of The Phantom Menacers. Who are they? Where will they be next? Will the insidious dealings of the Trade Alliance threaten the Gungan ecosphere? I don't care anymore. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. He hacks alongside the Spectral Force. 
a cabal that exists in darkness and blackness and constantly finds itself walking headfirst into walls. The spectral force. The gist. We are part of the most mysterious and phantasmic group of all. The Haunted Hayride. We infiltrate systems and offer you the opportunity to pick gourds. It's all in one. It is a danger to national security, but delicious when cooked in oil. Oomperu de Peru de Peru, and thanks for listening.